Section two of Stories in Grey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia. Stories in Grey by Barry Payne. Section two. At six o'clock on a summer evening in a well-furnished room that overlooked the traffic of Bond Street, Smeath and his employer sat and quarrelled together. Both of them wore new clothes, but Bellows had the air of prosperity, and Smeath had not. "'It's no good to talk to me,' whined Smeath. "'I know what I'm saying. Where an essential consideration has been intentionally concealed, an agreement cannot stand. You never told me I was a clairvoyant.' "'No,' said Bellows. "'I did not.' and I don't tell a man what the colour of his hair is either. Why? Because he knows it already. You knew that you were a clairvoyant. I did not. I swear I did not, said Smeath, raising his voice. Now, don't get excited. Don't squeal. I'm not squealing. Do you think that if I'd known I would ever have come to you for a wage like that? We've had fourteen people here today. What did they pay? Mind your own business. But it is my own business, and as you wouldn't tell me, I've taken my own steps to find out. Not one of them paid less than a guinea. You had as much as five guineas from some, and here am I with thirty shillings a week. I can get that agreement set aside. I can prove what I'm saying. I had never been hypnotized until I met you. Look here, said Bellows. Let us get this fixed up once for all. I don't know who's been cramming you up with these fairy tales about my fees, but I don't get what you think or anything like it. I get so little that I don't want to waste any of it on lawyers. Besides, it would do the business no good, and it would do you no good. I should leave you, and then where would you be? Remember that you are not clairvoyant until I make you clairvoyant. You think perhaps I have not read what the newspapers say about me? I can find a hundred hypnotists very easily, but there's no other man who's clairvoyant as I am, and there's no other man who can run a show as I can. Who brought the newspaper men here? Who paid for the advertisements? Who did pretty well everything? However, I'm not going to argue. If you want more money, you can have it. Name your figure. If it is in any way reasonable, you shall have it, on the understanding that this is the last advance you get. If it is unreasonable, you'll get nothing. You can take the thing into the courts, and I'll fight it. And mark my words, Smeath, if I do, you may get a surprise. You know nothing at all about hypnotism. You may find yourself in the witness box saying things that you did not intend to say. Now then, name your figure. The little man took time to think it over. He rubbed his chin with his fingers reflectively. He seemed on the point of speaking, and then stopped. Suddenly he snapped out, I want four pounds a week. It's simply barefaced robbery, said Bellows, but you shall have it. Mind you, you will have to sign another paper tomorrow, and this time there shall be no doubt about it. If you pay me that, I'll sign anything. With four pounds a week, I can keep some very good birds again. But you are right that it is barefaced robbery, and I'm the man who's being robbed. There had been many disputes between the two men during the six weeks that they had been associated. It was by tangents directions that Bellows acted in the present quarrel. It would be better to pay the little devil twenty pounds a week and keep him than to refuse and lose him, said Tangent. I believe he's right, and that your precious agreement isn't worth the paper it's written on. Anyhow, I'll get a new agreement ready. Pay him what he wants, and he'll sign it. Well, said Bellows doubtfully, if you say so, you're probably right. But in that case, we ought to get an extension of time out of him. No, said Tangent. The chap's suspicious of you. He hates you. If you try any sort of monkeying, he'll be off. 
Besides, with the fees you're charging, two years will about see it through. There are not such a vast number of people who can afford the game. As things go at present, it looks as though it might last forever. You should see the engagement book. We've got appointments booked for two months ahead. It isn't only a game, you see. It's not just a pastime for fashionable women. We get men from the stock exchange, businessmen of all sorts, racing men. Yesterday morning we had the Prime Minister's private secretary. He didn't give his right name, but Smith was on to it, and then he admitted it. Hot stuff, Smith. Do you get much out of him in the way of prophecy, foretelling the future? Not very often. He's done some wonderful things that way, but more usually he deals with something that is past. Why don't you get him to foretell your own future, Percy? Bellow shook his head. Not taking any, he said. He shall have a shot with you, if you like. But Tangent also refused. Their business had certainly progressed very rapidly. Tangent arranged a report in a newspaper. He communicated with one or two doctors whom he knew to be interested in the subject. He sent a couple of popular actresses to Smeath. He arranged a special séance for a cabinet minister whose principal interest was psychology. After the first week, they no longer employed sandwich men and advertisements. The ball had begun to roll. Everybody who came to Smeath sent somebody else. Everybody in society was talking about the hideous little dwarf and his marvellous powers. Bellows was regarded as a showman and a charlatan, but Smeath was clearly the genuine thing. Despite their mutual dislike, Bellows and Smeath both lived in the same house, the Bloomsbury Lodging House. It was Bellows who had insisted on this. He had never felt quite safe about Smeath, and even after the new agreement had been signed, he had his suspicions. He was afraid that Smeath would run away. Bellows occupied fairly good rooms on the first floor. Smeath had one room at the top of the house, but this happened to suit him. Through his windows, he could get out onto a flat, leaded roof. There he made friends with the pigeons and sparrows. The maidservant at the house, who one day saw him out on the roof with the birds all round him, said that it was witchcraft. They were opping about all over him. Sometimes he put one down and called another up. I never saw anything like it in my life before. She had the hatred of the unusual which is prevalent amongst domestic servants and gave notice at once. But before the month was up, she had grown quite accustomed to seeing Smeath playing with the birds and the notice was revoked. Bellows still used for business purposes the name of Sanders Bell, but he no longer called himself a doctor. He was meeting too many real doctors, and Tangent had advised against it. The room in Bond Street was divided in two by a curtain. The outer part served as a waiting room, and here, too, Bellows had his bureau. In the inner part of the room, the actual interview between the client and the clairvoyant took place. Their usual hours were only from eleven to one and from two to four, but Bellows would sometimes arrange for a special interview at an unusual hour and an increased price. On these occasions, he always took care to pacify Smeath. Sometimes he gave him money and sometimes other presents. On one occasion, he gave him a big book about birds with coloured illustrations, and Smeath remained docile and in a good temper for days afterwards. Yes, said Bellows. You've complained once that I was robbing you. You can't say that now. You have fixed your own salary. If there is the least little bit of extra work to be done, you always get something for it. You are not as grateful as you ought to be, Smeath. Where would you have been without me? What were you doing before you came to me? Nothing. For some weeks I had been very hungry. I make no complaint against you. But when my time's up, I shall stay no longer. I go back to the birds again. It would be more sensible of you, said Bellows, if you banked your money. 
what did you want to buy that great owl for he makes the devil of a row at night we shall have people complaining about it she is a very good friend to me that owl said smeath i'm teaching her much she will be valuable at this moment there was the sound of a footstep on the stairs and smeath stepped behind his curtain the man who entered was not at all the type of client that bellows generally received he was a thick-set man of common appearance and he was unfashionably dressed he did not look in the least as if he could afford the fee bellows saluted him somewhat curtly it is ten minutes to eleven sir and our hour for beginning is eleven however as you have called if you like to pay the fee now two guineas i will make an appointment for you but i am afraid it will have to be in nine weeks time the visitor looked reflective turning his seedy bowler hat round in his hands don't think that would do he said nine weeks that's a very long time couldn't mr smeath see me to-day couldn't he make an exception only by giving you a special appointment and for that a very much higher fee is charged how much asked the man he could give you ten minutes at one o'clock to-day but the charge for that would be six guineas you see mr smeath is only clairvoyant while in the hypnotic state and that cannot be repeated indefinitely the visitor took out an old-fashioned purse from his hip pocket he pulled out a five-pound note a sovereign and six shillings there you are he said please book me ten minutes with mr smeath at one o'clock to-day very good said bellows opening the engagement book he looked up with his pen in his hand what name shall i put down i am mr vincent you'll be careful to be punctual of course mr smeath will be ready exactly at one o'clock i shall be here said the man he had no sooner gone than smeath emerged from behind the curtain again what on earth did you do that for he asked excitedly keep your hair on smeath it's all right i'm going to buy you a big cage for that owl of yours i do not want any cage my birds are not kept in cages it is not the extra work that i mind it is that i cannot do anything for that man i tell you he is dangerous in what way dangerous i don't know he's dangerous to me he looked to me an honest chap enough he had the appearance of a chap up from the country probably wants to know what his best girl is doing i shouldn't worry about it if i were you don't stand in the way of business smeath you don't know what the expenses are here i've got to pay the rent next week and if i told you what that was you wouldn't believe it if you don't want the bird cage you shall have something else but it was necessary to show smeath a sovereign and to present him with it before he would consent even then he did so with great reluctance clients with appointments came in and the ordinary business of the morning began smeath no longer spoke when in the clairvoyant state for he was often consulted upon matters requiring secrecy and what he said might have been heard by other clients in waiting he had a writing block and he scribbled down on it in pencil what he saw at one o'clock precisely mr vincent returned and was at once brought behind the curtain smeath sat there motionless his eyes were open but he did not look up at mr vincent now then sir said bellows what is it you want mr vincent drew from his pocket a comb wrapped in paper it was the kind that women wear in their hair and it had been broken i want him to tell me about the girl who wore this at the time when it was broken bellows placed the comb in smeath's hands smeath held it for a moment and then the fingers relaxed and it dropped to the floor bellows again placed it in his hand and this time smeath flung it from him but immediately he began to write mr vincent watching him narrowly as he did so he wrote with an extraordinary rapidity presently bellows who had been standing behind him and reading what he wrote asked mr vincent to wait in the outer part of the room 
As soon as he was alone with Smeath, he took the writing block out of his hands, tore the sheet from it, folded it, and put it in his pocket. Then he rejoined Vincent. "'I'm extremely sorry, sir,' said Bellows, "'that the experiment has failed completely. "'There's perhaps some kind of antipathy "'between Mr. Smeath and yourself. "'These things do occasionally happen.' I find that he can tell you nothing at all, and under the circumstances I should perhaps return your fee. Vincent did not seem particularly surprised. Very well, he said. I had hardly expected to get what I wanted, but I thought I might as well try. I paid you six guineas, I think. You seem to be treating me fairly, and I have given you a certain amount of trouble. Suppose you return me five of them. The money was handed over, and Vincent departed. Bellows went back to Smeath and brought him out of the trance. Smeath shivered. Is he here still? No. Gone. Was it all right? It was quite all right. I'm glad he's gone, said Smeath. I was horribly afraid of something. Now I can go out and get my lunch, and I have to buy food for the birds, too. I shouldn't spend too much money on it if I were you, said Bellows. Smeath laughed. It is not very expensive, he said, and I have made one extra sovereign. Why not? "'Because in future, Smeath, you are going to work for me for much less money, for a pound a week, to be precise.' "'I shall not,' said Smeath loudly. "'I told you once before not to squeal. I don't like it. You will do exactly as I say, and for a very good reason. If you don't, you will be taken to prison, and you will be tried before a judge, and you will be hanged, Smeath, hanged for the murder of Esther Samuel in the woods at Teston.' "'What makes you say that? How do you know it?' asked Smeath. The fingers of his big hands locked and separated and locked again. His eyes were fixed intently on Bellows. He looked excited, but not frightened. "'How do I know it?' echoed Bellows. "'I have it here in your own handwriting.' He tapped his breast pocket. "'You do not remember what happened when you were hypnotized. I put a broken comb into your hands. It was a comb which the murdered woman had worn. You began to write at once. You put the rope around your neck, Smeath.' And that man, the man that I knew to be dangerous, Mr. Vincent, I told him that the experiment had failed and returned his fee. He knows nothing. So long as you do exactly what I tell you, you are quite safe. Who was he, this Vincent? Bellows shrugged his shoulders. How should I know? Possibly one of the Samuel family, possibly a tech. If I'd given him what he paid for, we should have had the police in here by now. I've saved your skin for you, Smith. Don't forget it. Will you read it out to me, the thing that I wrote down? no it tells one everything except the motive the motive was obvious enough i was hungry and had no money i had tramped the teston and reached there two days too soon i had nowhere to go and i lived and slept in the woods i begged from the girl at first and if she'd given me a few pence she might have been alive now she was not the least bit afraid of me why should she have been i was small misshapen and looked weak she was tall and strong as she turned away from me, she said the tramps in the neighbourhood were becoming a nuisance, and she would send the police after me. Even then, I only meant to hit her once, but that is a queer thing. You cannot hit a human being once. You see the body lying at your feet, and you have to go on, striking and striking. When I knew she must be dead, I flung the stick down. I took nothing but the money, nothing which could be traced. Even the money made me so nervous that I hid most of it, buried it in a place where I could find it again. If the police had found me, there would only have been a few coppers in my possession, and I did not look like a man who could have done it. But they never did find me. I see. That was why, when I offered to advance your railway fare, you told me you had money. You had a pair of new boots on when you turned up at Warlow. I remember what an infernal squeaking row they made on the platform. Well, you've done for yourself, Smeath. You've got to work for me on very different terms now. No, said Smeath. 
that is not so very good i'll write my note to mr vincent now he'll do the rest no you won't and i'll tell you why you can destroy me very likely but if you do you'll destroy your own livelihood and you always take very good care for yourself mr bellows destroy my livelihood said bellows thumping on the table with his fist that's where you make your mistake you little devil because you're useful you think you're indispensable you're not there's a reward of two hundred pounds out for anyone who finds the murderer of esther samuel i'm a born showman with two hundred pounds capital i can chuck this and start something else that will pay me just as well it looks as if i shall have to give in well there's no help for it i must get a much cheaper room of course no you won't you'll stop in the same house as me do you think i haven't worked it all out after you've paid your rent you've a shilling a day for food and better men have lived on less i'm not going to give you a chance to bolt and mark my words smeath if you do bolt the very moment i find you've gone i give you up don't imagine you can get away there are not many men of your build the police would have you for a certainty within twenty-four hours then i become a slave i can do nothing there were other birds that i meant to buy and in time i could have started a business again that must all go quite so that must all go in fact before a fortnight is out i expect you'll sell that big white owl of yours you'll grudge him his keep it is a she-owl and i shall not let her go she can do things that would surprise you can she said bellows it might be rather effective if you brought her down here she would impress clients i shall not i keep her for myself don't talk like a fool you're forgetting that i hold you between my thumb and finger if i tell you to wring that bird's neck you will have to do it smeath rose to his feet in fury where's my hat he said give me my hat bellows stood in front of the door what's the matter with you where are you off to checkmate for you mr bellows i'm going now to give myself up where is your two hundred pounds reward eh where is the money that you make out of the clairvoyant sit down and don't talk in that silly way i never told you to kill the bird i was only speaking in your interests when i said i doubted if you could afford to keep it as a matter of fact i don't care a pin's head about it either way if you set so much store by it keep it by all means in that case said smeath i will go on working for you and on the terms that you have said that's all right and now you can go out to lunch remember that you have to be back at two o'clock you're not here by ten minutes past two i shall send the police to look for you i shall be here mr bellows every saturday morning at half past nine tangent called on bellows in bond street to look over the books and to collect his share of the profits tangent had no great faith in mr bellows smeath was never allowed to be present on those occasions on the saturday after mr vincent's visit tangent was well pleased with the results mind you he said the little dwarf isn't doing so badly out of it either he gets his regular four pounds a week this week i see he's had one pound ten in cash for extra work and you're charging twelve and six for a present to him what was the present oh a bird of sorts the little beggar's simply mad about birds that did more good than if i'd given him the actual cash oh i'm not grumbling bellows said tangent surveying with complacency the diamond ring on his finger if by giving him a trifle extra now and then you can keep his good will it's quite worth our while to do it no man will work for nothing and i suppose he finds this clairvoyance game rather exhausting not over and above good for the health eh he says it's exhausting he seems to be well enough when tangent had gone 
Bellows smiled. To swindle Tangent was a real pleasure to him, even apart from the profit he'd made for himself. He remembered the terms which Tangent had forced him to accept for the provision of capital for the enterprise. The introduction of a large white owl into the Bloomsbury lodging-house could have but one effect. The maidservant gave notice at once on general principles. It was Smeath this time who persuaded her to remain. "'You must not be afraid of the white owl,' he said. "'Owls are wise birds. She knows who my friends are and who my enemies are. You are my friend, and she will never hurt you. She will let you feed her and stroke her feathers. They are very, very soft, the feathers of an owl.' In a week's time Jane was neglecting her work to play with the white owl out on the leads. For several weeks no change took place. Smith did his work with patience and docility. He addressed Mr. Bellows with respect. He made very little objection to private engagements. As a munificent reward, on two occasions Bellows took him out to lunch, and once presented him with some Sunday tickets for the zoo, which he himself did not want. Every Saturday Tangent inspected with satisfaction some purely fantastic accounts. Bellows was specially careful that Smith and Tangent should never meet, lest the discrepancy between the statements in the books and the actual facts should be discovered. And then business began to drop off. There was no excessive drop, but the previous standard was not quite maintained. That astute showman, Mr. Bellows, decided that something would have to be done. Some new feature would have to be introduced to set people talking again. Smith, he said one day, didn't you tell me something about a white owl? Yes, said Smith, I have one. It does tricks, don't it? It does a few things, said Smith grudgingly. You do not want it. You said that you would leave me my owl. You needn't get into a stew about it, and do for goodness sake keep those great hands of yours still. They get on my nerves. Nobody wants to take your blessed owl away from you. The only thing that I was wondering about is whether it might not be worth while to keep the bird here instead of at your lodgings. No, sir. No, Mr. Bellows. It is in my leisure time that I want my owl. Well, I was talking to Mr. Tangent about it, and he thought it was a good idea. In fact, he said I ought to have done it before. We must think about it. I've been pretty easy with you, Smith. Also, I've worked very hard for you. You've done what you were told, and of late you've given me no trouble. You might let Tangent and myself have a look at the bird anyhow. It would be effective, you know, the dwarf clairvoyant and the great white owl on the back of his chair. Tangent spoke of a poster. I'll tell him to give us a call in Bloomsbury on Sunday morning. I do not want my owl to be taken away. It lives there on the leads outside my window. Here it would be unhappy. How could I leave it here all night alone? Don't be unreasonable, Smith. You will see more of the bird then than you do now. No, said Smith. The greater part of the time when I'm here, I'm like a dead man and know nothing. Bellows had quite realized that this was the point on which Smith would have to be handled carefully. Look here, he said. I wouldn't do anything to hurt the bird. At any rate, let Mr. Tangent and myself see it. Let us see if it can really do the things that that girl Jane jabbers so much about. If Tangent and I think it would be an asset to the show, I'm prepared to go quite beyond our agreement. I'll give you two or three shillings for yourself, Smith. You can give yourself a treat. You've not been having many treats lately. In fact, you look just about half-starved. It was true. The little dwarf had grown very thin. His eyes seemed to have got bigger and brighter. There was a look in them now which would have made Bellows suspicious if he'd noticed it. Jane, said Smith, as he met her on the stairs that night, they are coming on Sunday morning to see my owl. Then they'll see miracles, said Jane with confidence, and they're going to take it away. If that bird goes, I goes. Smith burst into a peal of mirthless laughter. 
Mr. Tangent arrived in a taxicab at the Bloomsbury lodgings at eleven on the following Sunday morning. He was in a bad temper and swore and grumbled profusely. So I've got to turn out on a Sunday morning and work seven days a week just because you're such a damn bad showman, Bellows. You've let the thing down. The books on Saturday were perfectly awful. I'm not a bad showman, and it's not my fault. The weather's been against us, for one thing. And besides, no novelty lasts forever. We must put something else into it to buck it up, and we must get that poster out. That means more expense. I don't see why we should keep on paying Smith four pounds a week if business is falling off. And as for that rotten old owl of his, I'm no great believer in it. It will look all right on the poster, but it will do no good in your Bond Street rooms. I know those tricks. The bird picks out cards from a pack, or Sham's dead, or some other nursery foolery. Stale, my boy, hopelessly stale. According to what I hear, the bird does none of those things. It's a new line. Is it? I'll bet a dollar it ain't. However, tell Smith to bring it down and let's get it over. Smith won't bring it down. We shall have to go up to it. He makes a great favour of showing it to us at all. And if you'll take my tip, you'll say nothing to Smith beyond the good morning. I can tell you he wants devilish careful handling about this bird of his. If you interfere, you'll spoil it. All you've got to do, if you think it at all remarkable, is to say to me that it might possibly do. I shall understand. Now then, come along up. All those stairs, groaned Tangent. He was a heavy and plethoric man. When they reached Smith's room, he stood for a minute, panting. The room was ordinarily dingy enough. It was a fine morning, and the sun streamed in through the window. On the leads outside, they could see the great white owl perched on the bough of a tree which had been fixed there. Smith, with his hat off, stood beside it and seemed to be talking to it. Around his feet were a flock of pigeons and sparrows. He nodded to the two men and then gave one wave of his hands. The pigeons and sparrows flew off and left him alone with a white owl. Funny sight, grunted Tangent. Devilish funny sight. Smith opened the window and called into the room. Good morning, gentlemen. Will you come out? Don't much like it, said Tangent. I've no head for this kind of thing. Oh, you're all right, said Bellows. You needn't go anywhere near the edge. He placed a chair for him, and Tangent climbed out onto the roof, followed by Bellows. "'I will leave you to look at the bird by yourselves, gentlemen,' said Smith, and stepped down into the room. "'Then who's going to make the bird do its tricks?' asked Tangent. "'It's a fine-looking beggar, anyhow. Seems about half asleep. Tame enough.' He passed his jewelled hand over the snowy plumage on the bird's breast. "'There's a feather bed for you,' he said, laughing. The bird opened its eyes and leapt straight into the face of Bellows. Its plumage half stifled him. Its sharp claws tore his eyes. He screamed for help. Tangent in horror had flung himself down flat on the leads, covering his face. Within the room, Smith stood with folded arms, watching the scene with the utmost calmness. Bellows tore at the bird with his hands, but step by step it forced him back. There came one final scream from him, and then two seconds of silence, and then the thud as his body struck the stones below. Up above, the white owl flew swiftly away. The dwarf rubbed his hands and laughed, and then, changing his expression to one of extreme dismay, went to the help of the prostrate tangent. End of section 2 Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia